walking in a country and I've been chasing after my shadow. Welcome back, everybody, to the Camino Podcast. I'm Dave Whitson. This is episode 17. And we're going to keep that art theme from the last episode rolling this time around, shifting focus slightly from music towards the visual arts and specifically church art and architecture. It's a topic that I'd never really studied formally prior to walking the Camino. You know, I had a high school art history class to draw upon and I'd done the standard backpacking around Europe thing, so I'd visited a bunch of cathedrals, I'd seen a lot of stuff, but I'd never really thought systematically about it. And so everything I learned was from walking the Camino and reading Camino-related texts. David Gitlitz and Linda Davidson's work was really critical for giving me an orientation to many of the sites. And then I depended upon other scholarly works to further advance my knowledge. And that includes today's featured interview with Kathleen Ashley, whose work, Being a Pilgrim, was a tremendous resource for me. And it involves another academic, another professor as well, who I'll talk about more towards the end of the episode. It's an interview I didn't get to have. Along with that focus, we'll hear from a pilgrim about his experience walking the Camino Frances, Carl Otto from Chicago, Illinois. So that's the vision, is to think about these magnificent structures along the way that dot the road, that provide us lodging on hot days, that provide us inspiration both through the sculptures on the outside and the intricate work inside that feed our spiritual needs, but can also really nourish us intellectually as well. So this episode is less about their spiritual role and more about their function as magnificent pieces of or repositories of art uh, along the way. That's the goal for the episode. Thanks as always for tuning in and enjoy. Kathleen Ashley is a distinguished professor of English at University of Southern Maine and the co-author of Being a Pilgrim, Art and Ritual on the Medieval Roots to Santiago. Thanks for joining me, Kathleen. I'm happy to talk to you. What first drew your academic interest to the subject of pilgrimage? Well, I'm a medievalist, and if you are a medievalist, uh, pilgrimage is just one of those topics that you, you are aware of because it was so important um, to popular religion in the Middle Ages mm-hmm. and the early modern period. So it's simply a broad area that most medievalists' work touches somewhat. Um, by popular, I mean that the Church did not totally control pilgrimage. It was something um, that, even though the Church usually controlled the shrines that pilgrims visited, mm-hmm. it, it really took a lot of, as you know, individual initiative and impetus and decision-making. It was a very individual and private thing, too. So mm-hmm. somebody would decide to go on a on a pilgrimage, and the Church didn't really control it. They tried to, but, you know, they tried <laughs> to have rituals and give masses and, you know, give some guidance. But basically, it was a very, very much, it reflects 
a kind of a popular culture in the Middle Ages, which intrigues me. I mean, that's something I'm interested in, sort of how cultures function and what's important to one culture and not to another. So mm. I was always interested in it. I'd never done a lot of work on it, however, it, per se, but I wrote a book about the shrine of Sainte-Foy, of Saint Faith, who is a mm-hmm. little girl martyr saint in Conque, and you probably visited that if you took the Le Puy route. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Isn't it? Uh, it's magical. <laughs> it's a <this> magical <laughs> village. It's like Brigadoon, you know, you're out of time. So I had um, worked with a colleague, an art historian, on miracles that were written in the 11th century that that child saint was supposed to have done. And it was a local pilgrimage site in the Conk area. But in the 11th and 12th century, it got attached to the pilgrimage to Santiago. It was one of the stops on the route. So I'd written a book on the miracles and what they showed about 11th and 12th century culture in that area. And so the CEO of Ashgate Publishers, I guess, found out about that book and and asked me if I wanted to write another book specifically on the pilgrimage to Santiago. Hmm. I ended up writing um, Being a Pilgrim, Mm -hmm. um, which focuses much more on the experience of being a pilgrim, sort Mm -hmm. of for for a person in the Middle Ages and the early modern period up to the 18th century. So I I was just interested in what would draw someone away from home and work for months, weeks, yeah. months, if not years, uh, in dangerous roads and conditions and sort of exploring that whole experience during that early period. And my strength is clearly interdisciplinary studies. I mean, I bring together, you know, history, art history, literature, legends, rituals, everything. So mm. that's, this book, the book allowed me to, to do that. What makes Pilgrim Roads in general and the Camino de Santiago in particular rich areas for art and architecture? You know, that was one of the major focal points of your book. And obviously, art and architecture are not limited to pilgrimage, but they they do seem to be prominent features of Pilgrim Roads. Well, I mean, I think it, I mean, the way I would sort of address it is to say that our terms of art and art and architecture we study as separate disciplines, mm-hmm. separate artistic, creative disciplines. But of course, in the Middle Ages, they're they're really embedded within other cultural frames, specifically the frame of religion. Mm. So, um, during this period, medieval, early modern, um, you know what what we now separate out as an art object, a sculpture or a painting, or you know, a reliquary or something, or a building, was actually functioning within a religious system for mm-hmm. the people who used it. I think it's important to remember that that cultural frame is really always, it's always like, what what are people using this for? What does it mean to them? What what significance does it have within, for, in that time, people of faith in particular? Although I have to say that many of the pilgrims who went on pilgrimage during the Middle Ages, as we can tell from Pilgrim autobiographies, they were also, um, you know, triggered. I mean, they were interested just by curiosity. Some of them just wanted some adventure too. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. they were just. But generally, these the art appears because it has a religious purpose. It's part of the 
enhancing the spiritual experience of the person who either comes to the shrine, comes to the church. Um, and almost all the churches, of course, held the relics of holy people. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't consecrate a church without relics. So if you were an ordinary person, a pilgrim, you would wanted to go to those sites where holy people's remains, whether they were bones or something that they had touched, something material, mm-hmm. um, that, that you could make contact with it. So there's a, there's a kind of material aspect of this. You know, you want to make contact with the relics of holy people and have some of that holy person's, that saint's power um, for your own use. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether it's to heal you or to, you know, if you're barren to have a baby or, you know, <laughs> you're going off to war, you want to... You want some of that potency to keep you safe. I mean, there were lots of, you know, lots of reasons you might want to touch that. But so I think that um, I sort of see the these churches, these shrines, these are sacred places that, because they were so kind of meaningful to that culture, mm-hmm. tended to attract, you know, attract good artists and, and good architects and patrons who had money would put them in those sites because they were valuable sites to the people. I can tell you that if this was the Middle Ages, every single political candidate would be on the road to Santiago de Compostela. <laughs> I mean, that was some that was a political move too. Mm. You know, you want to be associated with this with pilgrimage. And um, you know, as you saw when you went from Le Puy um, down to Conque and down that route. It's like a necklace of, of, you know, you made contact with various saints and mm-hmm. shrines along the way until you came to your ultimate destination. So, you know, if you were a medieval person, you were having a lot of these experiences. You were making contact with a lot of potency along the way. <laughs> so these places became the shrine, the pilgrimage route, this kind of a nexus of a lot of religious, economic, commercial, political, artistic energy in these mm. societies. So I think that's why they are so rich in in art and architecture, actually. It's funny, you've mentioned Sainte-Foy a couple of times, and that sort of captures the seedy underbelly of all of this, right? That her remains were actually stolen <laughs> by right. Conk in order to make Conk a major pilgrimage destination. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's the legend anyway. Yeah. Her, her, <laughs> she was martyred. She was a little girl who was maybe 12, 13, martyred in Agen to the west. And uh, and then at a certain point in the ninth century, the monks at Conk said, hey, we need, so, <laughs> we need a powerful saint to, you know, put our monastery on the map. So they dispatched someone who lived undercover. This is the story. Mm-hmm. And stole the relics, and then they built a big reliquary at Conk for her. So, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's there's all kinds of sort of black market traffic in relics. <laughs> um, I mean, in the early, in the very earliest period when Christians were martyred in the first centuries, the attempt was to have a tomb with the whole body there. But then as the Roman power left Europe, and you began to have raids by pagans and people from other things. Then churches and monasteries were under siege, and they would they would often break up the the bodies. And so the relics, you know, there became there develops a relic trade in 
mm-hmm. even the tiniest bits of these bodies <laughs> going to various churches all over, and you had to you had to have a church sanctified by a relic, so that was important. So, yeah, there was this uh, this trade that was both sanctioned and black market, basically. <laughs> um, you know, as well as you could end up with two heads. You know, there was there were relics of Mary Magdalene in several places, and you know, people theologians argued about which one was the real the real relic and uh i think there were two heads of lazarus you know in different <laughs> places and and there was there was quite a bit of um question about exactly where the relics of saint james were and you know some of the pilgrim narratives we have some of the pilgrims say, oh, well, you know, he's somewhere. <laughs> you know, I'm still going to the shrine. Other, other ones were kind of bothered by this, you know, that the church wouldn't be more precise about exactly, you know, certifying the relics. So it's, it's an interesting part of medieval culture, I have to say. Absolutely. Thinking about architecture specifically, for those lacking a background in art history, it might be challenging to track some of the differences in style between churches. And so I'm wondering if you could walk us through some of the different major styles like Romanesque and Gothic that are commonplace along the Camino and give us a few defining characteristics to watch for. Like what are a few features that are sort of dead giveaways for a particular style? Well, I think for many of the churches along the pilgrimage route, they begin they are really the ones that survive were originally built in the Romanesque period, so that would be like ninth to the thirteenth century, ninth to the twelfth century. Mm-hmm. And the dead the deadest giveaway is the rounded arch, mm. which supposedly when you say Romanesque, it's really drawing from the idea of the Roman arch, which was also rounded. Mm-hmm. So it was a sort of a mimicking the Roman arch. Tended to have very thick walls, very small windows pillars um, inside that held up this heavy structure, (laughs) and usually there would be a big central aisle and then a couple of small side aisles with capitals, but uh, often the capitals were interestingly carved with Mm. interesting sculptures, um, some of which have a program in the sense that they connect to each other in some narrative or connect to some saint, and others are just seem random. You know, there'll be a monster <laughs> or there'll be some interesting scene that, that, you know, art historians can't figure out why why the person carved it. And I think <laughs> in a lot of Romanesque, there's, there's actually quite a bit of space for creativity mm-hmm. and for ingenuity and playfulness in the carving. And usually in, over the western entry, the door that you would go in, in Romanesque church, there will often be a tympanum, there will often be a space under the arch, over the lintel, where there'll be some sort of sculpture, either Christ in majesty mm-hmm. in heaven, or a last judgment, or, you know, some some really, some scene that, that was to remind you that you were entering a sacred space, yeah. where, you know, these weighty spiritual matters where where you needed to start thinking about them. So that would be the Romanesque, a a fairly heavy, Mm -hmm. uh, solid, um, not necessarily that light inside. The Gothic, when it comes in in the 12th century, 13th century, um, it has, you recognize it by the pointed arches, Mm. um, which at that point, the architects somehow, I'm not 
totally sure how, <laughs> discovered that they actually could carry more weight than mm. the rounded arch. And so they were able to point the arches and have much thinner walls than in the Romanesque. And outside, they often have kind of a flying buttress. They have another extension that, that disperses the weight. So mm -hmm. the weight gets dispersed over a much larger area in a Gothic church. And you could have larger windows, too. In mm. thinner walls, you could have larger windows. And those windows then could be stained glass. They could be... So that's an important feature to recognize a Gothic church, is usually there'll be quite a bit of stained glass mm. with narratives of either biblical or saints and, and symbolic figures. And, um, and so a lot more light tends to come into a Gothic church, especially as the Gothic proceeds. In the Gothic building, too, and this is one of the things, as you walk into the church, you're sort of reminded of last things, and you're... you're stepping out of the mundane everyday space into a sacred space when you mm -hmm. go into the church. And presumably you're going to um, walk through the church um, having a kind of a spiritual journey, you know, shedding your sins maybe. And you walk toward the east, and the eastern part of the church, the other side of the church, represented resurrection. It represented sort of the promise of the good things, you know. You sort of thought about the bad things that might happen to you at the beginning, and then, but you're looking toward the promise of a resurrection at the other end. So often in Gothic churches, the, the East End um, would have really beautiful decoration and windows, mm. you know. Um, so, it, and it would be, you'd walk, you know, down the aisle, and there would be the altar, and usually a choir where the where the monks or whoever the canons would say the services. So that w I would say most of the churches along the pilgrimage route are either Romanesque or Gothic, or Romanesque that were developed into Gothic <laughs> or given Gothic modification, because most. You know, as long as the pilgrimage was viable and popular, people wanted to, you know, do the la have the latest updates. So, mm. <laughs> so most buildings have a, vari a variety of styles. They're not one simple style, mm. unless they were in a place that kind of got left by the wayside yeah. <laughs> and didn't continue developing. Then in Santiago, what mm. you really see also is the Baroque, which comes into being in the 17th and 18th century as this incredibly decorative, magnificent style with lots of rich ornamentation. So I'm sure your students notice mm -hmm. that. You walk up these stairs, which were added, and there's this huge Baroque facade, and behind it is the original 12th century. So it's an 18th century, very rich, busy, dynamic, you know, very ornamented facade, but behind it is the 12th century entry, you know, so it's covered up now, but once it was out in the open. Um, and, and much of Santiago, because it was so central to the cult, got redone in the 18th, in the Baroque style. Mm. So you have, you have, you know, Romanesque remnants and Romanesque buildings, and then they'll have Gothic additions, and then they'll be have Baroque <laughs> in, in the, on top of it. So there's a lot of layering in a place like Santiago, because it was such an important city. Mm. And let's stick with that for a minute. What are some of the highlights of the Santiago Cathedral from an artistic perspective? Well, 
I would say clearly that doorway, the Romanesque doorway uh, that was created in the 12th century mm-hmm. that's behind the Baroque facade is is seen as one of the art historical masterpieces of, you know, of Romanesque art, basically. Um, it's the the portal of glory, Portico da Gloria, mm-hmm. um, and it, it has the, you know, sort of stories of, it has Christ and the Apostles in the middle, there's Jewish forerunners on the left, left entry and gentiles on the right so and above christ who is in glory is a tympanum uh there with christ with 24 elders from the book of the apocalypse in the bible playing their musical instruments Mm. uh, in praise of christ which is supposedly happens eternally in heaven Mm. um and i think it's interesting to look at though they're all playing different medieval musical instruments and um musicologists have used that sculpture on the 12th century portal to reconstruct hmm. medieval instruments wow. that they didn't know very much about. They had references to it, but it so precisely you know, has all the different instruments that musicologists have used it for that purpose, hmm. uh, which is really lovely. You know, you're, yeah. you're, they're in heaven, but they're, I have to say, uh, you know, they're reproducing something that was happening on Earth, too. <laughs> um, and there's, of course, a, a famous statue of St. James mm-hmm. um, in his role as the leader of the cult and of the church. Um, mm. They are very beautiful. I mean, the statues are all very, very beautiful. Um, so that would be one thing that that's, you know, art historians, of course, mm. would consider really important. I, as a as a student of sort of popular culture, popular religion, especially like the the altar with the statue of Santiago above it. Mm-hmm. And there there has been a statue there since the 12th century. This one's a little bit later, and then it was um, sort of refurbished in the 16th century with gold. Hmm. And the reason I'm sort of intrigued by it is that there's a, like a major ritual during the Middle Ages and up till now called hugging the saint, mm-hmm. which I'm assuming your students did. Oh, yeah. You climb up the stairs, you go, well, that started in the Middle Ages, and, and it was originally pilgrims, um, we know from their autobiographies. They Sometimes there was a gold crown that they would put on the head of the statue. Sometimes they would take their hat and put it on the head of the statue. <laughs> And then it eventually became hug it. You put you stood behind and hugged the saint. Hmm. Now, I think one of the reasons that that ritual stayed for so many centuries is that they actually lost the relics of the saint mm. during the Middle Ages. They actually <laughs> mislaid the relics, and so you they didn't know where the tomb was, and they didn't know where the saint. So normally, a pilgrim would go and make contact with the saint at the tomb where the relics were, but the they couldn't do that in Santiago. So I think the church kind of substituted the statue and the ritual of the statue. I mean, the relics were only actually recovered in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. So when you go down to the crypt now, there's supposedly the relics there, mm-hmm. but they weren't really available to anybody before the 19th century. So... Um, I, I kind of like that statue. I think it's really an important one. You know, they they had to keep that in good shape because it was it was sort of central to the rituals. Um, obviously, uh, you know, artists are very interested in the 
the facade, the 18th century facade, the very, mm-hmm. you know, ornate, uh, put on over the Romanesque, um, and the stairs were built, and originally there were buildings in that whole plaza area, mm-hmm. so it wasn't until the Baroque period, the 17th, 18th century, they actually cleared out and uh, and made that huge plaza, so... You know, they, now it's a very stunning place and a gathering place for pilgrims and, you know, hmm. various kinds of festivity. But it wasn't actually like that in the Middle Ages. Wow. And, uh, you know, that was, a, that was a development of the Baroque period when a lot of things got kind of spiffed up and made much more ornate. Another, another thing that is in Santiago is the hostal of mm-hmm. the Reyes Catholicos, which is right at an angle to it. The Parador. <laughs> yes. It, well, it was built as a hospice <laughs> by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella at the beginning of the 16th century. They were very religious, and they wanted a hospice for pilgrims and sick people. And, of course, then it got turned recently, more recently, into a Parador, <laughs> a, fancy, a fancy inn. But it's, it's basically a 16th century building, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, a really beautiful one, actually, I'm not sure uh, whether you ever talked to students about the Codex Calixtinus, yeah, the oldest manuscript compilation of texts, mm-hmm. and that that's something that's really also you know very very rare, very unusual. I mean, it has all the hymns and music and miracles, and you know mm-hmm. tells about the voyage of the decapitated body from Palestine to Galicia. <laughs> to gives the Charlemagne narrative. It has, and it has the first guidebook um, mm-hmm. of the pilgrimage routes from the 12th century. So it's um, a, an incredibly valuable manuscript. I'd say that's one mm. of the treasures of the town. Um, and it was stolen know, it was a couple stolen. years ago. Yeah, yeah, it was stolen. And I was imagining that it was in the private domain of some Arab <laughs> magnate <laughs> or something. But turns out it was just a disaffected janitor or something who'd put it in a shed because he was pissed off he lost his job so i thought that was kind of funny oh, they man. did get it back but i i'd say the major thing that you know and of course you can also look around the church uh, for all the various images of the saint that mm-hmm. you know have have sort of been stuck to that building you know i mean there's just Sculpture and painting, I mean, there's every kind of image, and, you know, images from the 9th to the 18th century, basically. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a building that, that contains a lot of different styles and a lot of different, a lot of different images of the saint, mm-hmm. um, from, you know, the pilgrim or the, um, the apostle or the matamoros, you know, the killer, mm-hmm. killer of Moors. So it's, a, it's kind of, I think it's always kind of interesting to look every time you go to a, a new church to see who's the pa- who's the patron saint of the church, I mean, who's the central saint mm-hmm. in the church, and then what kinds of artwork were made for that or were donated that had to do with the life and the legend of the saint or the saint's miracles or, you know, whatever the saint did. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's kind of interesting to look look at, just think about how, um, having a church dedicated to a particular saint would generate a lot of art, basically. Mm. And I think you're anticipating one of the questions that I really want to ask you. It's something that I struggle with sometimes. Is uh, I, when I take students into a church or a cathedral, I think it's 
easy for them. It's easy for me to just sort of be overwhelmed by the magnitude of it, by the ornateness. There's a lot going on in a lot of these churches. Oh, my God, yes. And and, so... and it is. <laughs> it, it, I mean, the pilgrimage route has, it's like a magnet, you know? Mm-hmm. It's drawn all this art and all this, you know, all this stuff. And mm-hmm. it is overwhelming. It, it can be overwhelming. So how should they... How should they read a cathedral? In other words, how do they, how can I instruct them or advise them to walk in and maybe take a more academic or systematic approach to making meaning of it? Well, I think I would, I would sort of go back to what I said originally. That is, they should think of it as, you know, just because you've arrived at the shrine or at the church, it's not the end of the journey. The mm-hmm. going inside is a journey in itself. It's meant to be a journey. So the person entering by the west doorway, you know, is supposed to, if there is a tympanum, if there's sculptures on the doorway, you're supposed to see what kind of a message about <laughs> um, spiritual realities is being given there for you to think about. You're supposed to be, like, primed by that. It's the thesis statement. <laughs> yeah, and primed to think about yourself. In It is a kind of a spiritual journey in a church. Mm-hmm. And so a church was set up to enable the person walking in to have a spiritual experience or an unfolding spiritual experience. So I would say it starts at the western portal mm-hmm. and, and moves toward the eastern one at the other end, um, where is, is sort of the most sacred space, that, right? There's the altar, mm-hmm. there's the choir for services. Many of the pilgrimage churches will actually have an ambulatory. They'll mm-hmm. have a corridor going behind the choir area. Sometimes, usually there'll be little chapels off there dedicated to other saints. And, you know, you're supposed to walk through and, you know, maybe check into the chapels and see what, you know, have sort of sub, sub-saint experiences <laughs> than the main one. And often there'll be, often that ambulatory will have reliquaries with relics of other saints there or other holy figures. So you're, you're having a kind of a spiritual experience as you walk through the church. Typically, the person would also go to the tomb of the saint, which might be downstairs in a crypt mm-hmm. of some kind. And that would be like the highlight. Now, as I said, in Santiago, it wasn't the highlight because <laughs> they, they weren't showing them. You know, you, you basically went to the statue and hugged the statue or did some, something with the statue, made contact with the statue. So I think, I think thinking of it as a, as a, a little journey through the church Mm-hmm. where you're getting different kinds of spiritual experiences and you know it was a it was a space that i don't think medieval people thought of it in terms of art <laughs> you know they thought of it in terms of a religious experience basically mm-hmm. or spiritual experience but they also were kind of dazzled by everything that was there i mean i think they also had that feeling of being overwhelmed Mm-hmm. And but it but they thought of it as a good feeling, you know, that somehow this was a good feeling, not a bad feeling, not to understand everything, mm. um, and to just you know to have so much gold and precious stones and amazing you know stuff to look at. They interpreted as a really uh, almost an out of body experience. Mm. Um, that was part of a spiritual experience for them, I think, often. So it was a very emotional and spiritual experience. I'm sure you go with your students to Burgos. Mm-hmm. 
Now, that at church is just, that is really <laughs> overwhelming, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I think if I were taking students to Burgos, which is, I mean, you could spend months there <laughs> looking at everything. The chapels there are just filled with magnificent art of mm-hmm. all kinds. I would ask them to do go pick a chapel mm. and sort of get a sense of who's the patron. Is it a saint? Is it a local noble? You know, um, mm. and and wh- how does the art connect to the patron of that chapel? Like what's mm. in that chapel? Usually, there's a hell of a lot. You know, mm-hmm. so I mean, I would I would not try and you know anyone to, I mean, it is overwhelming. It's just overwhelming. But you can sort of say, obviously, people who had money and power wanted to create chapels in Mm -hmm. these churches. You know, they wanted to leave their mark on it, you know, their name on it. They wanted to, you know, commission art to go there, and um, or sometimes they put their tombs there in the Mm -hmm. chapel. If you really looked intensively at one chapel, it would be so various and so it'd be enough, (laughs) (laughs) almost. So you've mentioned Santiago, you've mentioned Burgos. I wonder if you could identify a few other places, churches, works of art along the Camino that are favorites for you. What are some some of your personal highlights along the way? Okay. Well, these are, you know, idiosyncratic. Um, <laughs> of course. I mean, Burgos, Burgos is just fabulous, <laughs> but overwhelming. Um, and it was, I mean, in, in the Middle Ages and early morning, it was a huge cosmopolitan city. It had Moorish populations, Jewish populations. It was a commercial center. It had more hospices than any other town <laughs> on the <laughs> route. You know, it was just, it attracted top-notch artists. So it's not a surprise that it's so overwhelming. But I kind of like some of the smaller places. Like, mm-hmm. I like Puente La Arena, where all the different routes coalesce into one. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a bridge, there's a Romanesque bridge with six arches that's kind of, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And in the, in the town, there are, it became famous for hospices, because that's where all the routes were coalescing. And it has interesting churches, you know, with some mm-hmm. interesting statues. One of my favorites, I have to admit, is Santo Domingo de la Calzada. With the chickens. The chickens, (laughs) yes. I mean, it's such a charming little town. And the church is really neat. Um, Mm -hmm. And, of course, Santo Domingo is the the patron saint. And he was, you know, very founded a hospice. And, and, uh, of course, the Parador there is the 15th century building that that was built uh, Mm. eventually as the hospice. So... You can go in and get a peek. I mean, it's pretty stellar, actually, as mm-hmm. a space. All kinds of paintings of his life and his miracles. So mm-hmm. it, it's a kind of coherent space, in a way, <laughs> uh, more than you know, it's a little less overwhelming. And then, of course, you have the chickens, right? Yeah. The miracle of the chickens. Now, I've read every autobiographical memoir of you know medieval, early modern, of traveling the roots. Mm-hmm. And every single one, without fail, has stopping in Santo Domingo and seeing <laughs> the chickens. That is the most popular miracle associated with the pilgrimage route. Wow. Absolutely. Um, so you go see the chickens. I mean, there are live chickens, as you know, <laughs> and all kinds of you know images of chickens, and it's simply um, the most you know. <laughs> it was the most popular story associated with the route. 
The other thing that's kind of neat artistically there um, is the retable for the main Mm -hmm. altar removed in the 1990s, and it revealed all these Romanesque pillars Hmm. that were carved. And they're uh, beautiful carvings. There's one of King David with a rebec with a musical instrument. There's, I mean, beautiful carvings, and they didn't even know they were there. Hmm. They, they'd been, um, <laughs> it, it was, I think, a 16th century carved thing that, that covered up these pillars. Wow. So the pillars are Romanesque pillars with all this beautiful Romanesque carving. So that's like a recent, you know, mm-hmm. um, thing that was, that was just uncovered. I kind of think that's neat. Another of my favorites is the is Leon, which mm-hmm. I think is a really interesting town, and especially I guess I like the Pantheon with the mm. fresco painted ceiling, which which basically art historians call the Sistine Chapel of Romanesque art, and I I have to agree. I mean, it's just spectacular. And this is beneath um, San Isidro, right? It's it's beside, yeah. Beside, it, it's yeah. where they're the pantheon with the tombs of like twenty three kings of Leon. Yeah. And you have this twelfth century frescoed ceiling with um scenes from the life of Christ and mm-hmm. Christ in glory, um, blessing and symbols of the apostles and rural scenes. I mean it's it's really just knock your eyes out. Mm-hmm. And because it, you know, been enclosed, the, the colors are still vivid and um it's just a, you know, it's it's really one of the treasures of of uh, Romanesque art basically. Mm-hmm. We <laughs> my photographer friend and I had decided that we we definitely wanted to get a picture of it and if you if you've seen my book Being a Pilgrim, you mm-hmm. it's the end sheets is that <laughs> is a scene from that ceiling. And I went and they said, Oh no, 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 no pictures. You can't have a picture and I said, Well who's the who's head, you know, who's the head of the museum or the head of this, you know, the establishment. So I phoned her up. They said, Oh well she'll be in tomorrow at eleven So I phoned her up at eleven and in my bad Spanish. I, <laughs> I speak Portuguese well. I speak Spanish badly. But anyway, I, I explained who we were. We wanted to get a picture for our book. and She said, well, if you get over here in 20 minutes, I'll give you five minutes oh my God. to take a photo, and I will hold the other, other tourists back so they can't see that you're taking a picture. So my, <laughs> my friend, the photographer, was over at the ch- another church. So I telephoned her. I said, meet me instantly in, in the Pantheon. We rushed in. I had luckily picked which scene I wanted to photograph. We went in. She, you know, she sets up her camera. We have five minutes to take the picture. And then <laughs> she had to like hide her camera. And then they let in the other two. I mean, it was like incredible. And, uh, <laughs> it was, it was an adventure getting, but in the end, um, in the end, the the press, you know, the publishers said, you know, agreed that it really was a, a unique place, and and they they suggested putting the the you know putting them on the end sheets of the book, which I think makes the book really gorgeous, mm. <laughs> you know, compared yeah. to white end sheets, basically. <laughs> but they, so Leon, I just find interesting. Um, there's also another uh, parador there that mm-hmm. was a monastery of San Marcos with, you know, really interesting 16th century decorations that, that really shows the non-Romanesque, non-Gothic decorations on the facade, mm-hmm. including scallop shells. And, you know, I think it's kind of an interesting, uh, different building. 
so I, you know, those, I would say those are just some of my idiosyncratic ones that I particularly, you know, <laughs> find charming. Kathleen, this has been super interesting. I've really enjoyed hearing you talk about art and architecture along the way and the pilgrimage tradition. So thanks very much for making the time to talk with me. Well, I really enjoyed it. It's, it's always fun to touch base with somebody who's had some of these experiences. I'm speaking with Carl Otto from Chicago, Illinois. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, actually. It's a beautiful day in Chicago. I've uh, had my first cup of coffee. Things are looking <laughs> up. Awesome. Yeah, so let's let's talk about some fun stuff then. Let's talk about your Camino. Tell me about your um, Camino background. Where and when did you walk? Okay, so um, I actually just did my second Camino um, in April, and uh Prior to that, I did uh, the 100 kilometers in Lugo a few years before, um, so between Lugo and Santiago, but, uh, you know, gave me just a really nice uh, nice sample, and so I decided, hey, I'm going to do uh, the Camino Francais, so I started off in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, end of March, uh, and walked all the way to Leon, and since, you know, I didn't have enough time, and, you know, I had hurt my ankle before, decided to take the train over to Santiago de Compostela and do the, the walk to Finisterre. And then I headed home after that. It's interesting. Why did you decide, you know, with limited time to basically skip that last stretch into Santiago? Is it just because you'd done a lot of that walk before or, or, or what else was behind your decision? Well, I think, you know, I had been to, been to Santiago before. Um, I, I had my Compostela already, and would have loved to do it, but you know, I just I didn't have the the time. And for me, it kind of made perfect sense to walk as much as I could and stop in Leon, which is you know a, a big city that's that's easy to get to. You know, I, I have dreams of picking it back up in a few years, so it seemed like a good stop off point. And then you know, I had enough time. I had about four or five days, and so that gave me enough time to spend a good day in Santiago and go to Finisterre, which is, you know, something I had actually really wanted to do from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And so I actually remember I was uh, taking a nap in uh, Boadilla del Camino in uh, hmm. in the albergue there, and I had put my head down for five minutes, and in the background, you know, I just started working out, like, oh, I've got this much time, how's this going to work out? And then I just, like, popped up, and I'm like, oh, I can do the route to Finisterre. <laughs> That'd be awesome. So yeah, it worked out. It worked out wonderfully, I have to say. And I, I, at Finisterre, I saw like one of the most beautiful sunsets I've ever seen in my life. It was really, uh, really touching experience. So I, it can't have asked for uh, for a better experience the entire way through. Mm. It gave you uh, a nice sense of closure on the experience to be there. It really did. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true for for a lot of people. What? You know, your experience of walking 100K your first time, getting to Santiago, and then wanting to go back and do a longer stretch, I think that's pretty common. I think a lot of people have that experience for whether it's because of time or they're intimidated or they're not sure how it's going to go. They opt for that Mm -hmm. smaller piece the first time around. 
Um, so I'm curious, sort of, as you as you moved from that first experience to the second experience, what were you really, what were you hoping for or expecting from that longer, more extended Camino? Oh man, that's a that's a tough question. <laughs> I uh, just just to go back a step, I think the idea of like a, a very long walk has always appealed to me a lot. Um, I'm a huge Lord of the, Lord of the Rings fan, for instance, <laughs> and so. Uh, the idea that I could do something uh, like that, the closest equivalent, um, you know, really, really appeals to me. I, I don't know if I had any expectations of, you know, I would have this this grand, amazing epiphany, mm-hmm. but there's there's definitely um, a state I picked up a little bit on the Camino the first time that was a really nice shift in perspective mm-hmm. uh, that comes, I think, with just being out in the elements and, uh, you know, having your life uh, consist of walking and sleeping and eating and, you know, just a lot of physical exercise. I was looking for that uh, mental shift at the very least. But I also I also tried to follow the lead of a fr- of what a friend of mine said, which was, you know, try, try to have any expectations, which is, it's harder than uh, than I thought. It sure is, yeah. Especially when right, you right. had that taste, or when you you read some things about it, you just mm-hmm. you 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 build up these 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 grand hopes for for what it might be. But I think what you described makes a lot of sense. At least it it resonates for me that it's less about some singular moment and more about it's almost like you're peeling back the layers of the stress of all of the other things that accumulate over the course of our daily lives. And you get down mm-hmm. to some sort of core essence of being. Um, you're outside. You're physical. You're healthy, and it's it, it is this 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 positive feeling that permeates um, sort of all aspects of your day. Right, and I think you know to to go on to that, um, my my goals for the trip kind of fell in in this order. You know, and, and my first goal was. You know, it wasn't to get to, to Santiago. I think Santiago is important, but my first goal was just set foot on the road. Like I was, I was looking forward to this for a very long time. So setting foot on the Camino was uh, the first thing. Got mm-hmm. that done. Uh, my second goal was be able to walk the next day, which I was able to do for the most part, with you know the exception of some rest days, which are much needed. And then, you know, the third goal was any sort of like, see how far you can walk your distance, anything like that. But that was a far behind the first two. Mm-hmm. That's great. While we're talking about, you know, the general feeling and these, these sort of macro level issues, mm-hmm. there still often are those individual days or, or experiences or conversations that stand out. Do you have like a defining moment or memory that sticks out in your mind from your walk along the Camino? I remember having a few moments where, you know, I twisted my ankle the fourth day, which, you know, significantly cut down my mileage. It's like the the physical pain and then you have like a little bit of stress related to it. So there was that and then the, the weather was unseasonably cold and rainy, muddy as well. So those two things you know, you can choose disadvantages or however you want to see them. But I remember having a few moments where it's like, well, this is what I signed up for. And this is like, this is part of the package. And uh, I guess I, I guess I just wanted to say like, this is exactly what I wanted. And there's something to, there's something to gain from this. So it's really not, 
it really doesn't make sense to complain too much about, you know, my ankle or, you know, the fact that the rain's coming in, you know, I'm getting soaked from the side on this long stretch of meseta mm-hmm. that, you know, that, it, that it's really, I guess I want to say like a holistic experience. <laughs> so you were, you exercised some maturity in the moment, some perspective when you certainly could have sulked instead. Right, right. I, I like to think so. I still complain a little bit. <laughs> of course. You know, it's a funny thing, like, over and over again, you know, I lead student groups. Mm-hmm. When they when they tell the experience to others, they always start with the pain. You know, yeah. they, they always start with the moment when everything hurt, when, you know, something had gone wrong. Like, they always start mm-hmm. with these bleak moments. And people on the outside looking in don't know what to do with that. Like, the, their immediate reaction is, oh, my God, that sounds terrible. But when the kids are right. telling the stories of pain, they're not being told as, as negative stories they're actually mm-hmm. being told as these powerful moments when you know we got past it when we when we didn't right. get bogged down by the pain yeah and it makes a challenge and it makes opportunities too i think that you know if i hadn't twisted my ankle and slowed down i wouldn't have met a lot of the wonderful people i met along the way and you know if it hadn't been raining and all muddy i wouldn't have appreciated a warm place and a bowl of hot soup what was it like leaving your group in leon i imagine that must have been the hardest part that you walk with a lot of these same people for a long stretch and all of a sudden without sort of the logical conclusion point of of the end you're you're pulled out of the group midway like how was that for you you know, the the group part was, it was fine, actually, because mm. I had been joining and leaving groups all throughout the entire time, so that, you know, when I twisted my ankle, my walking partner went ahead and basically, you know, got to finish, finish the Camino in, in a really quick time, but, um, you know, I felt like I was experiencing that along the way and so you know maybe a big surprise for me was uh, the Camino for me was kind of like an exercise in transience that you know people come in and people go but there's nothing necessarily wrong about that you know it's not necessarily bad to leave someone behind or to be left behind it may feel like it does but you know that I I found it to be a, a necessary part a necessary element to it and it again presented a lot of opportunities that's great. It's uh, it is the reality that you can feel sometimes, you know, positively or negatively, but stuck within a group of people that you've been walking with for four or five days. And it's incredible right. how much the dynamic can shift when you just fall back one stage or move ahead one stage. All of a sudden, you're in a completely different set of social circumstances. Mm-hmm. And but but I also have to say, you know, Dave, you'll recognize this: is that there's. Uh, enough serendipity to go around <laughs> on the Camino. And so even after I took my train ride from uh, Leon to Santiago, mm-hmm. I still ran into people I knew. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah. let's, let's talk about some other Camino logistics and mechanics. Is you know People mm-hmm. often worry about this stuff prior to their first Camino. So you know, what was your budget like? How did you manage to keep your expenses uh, from shooting up too high? Right, right. So, yeah, I'd saved up, I guess, like 18 months or something like that beforehand. I under-budgeted, though I, I had, without transportation, I had about 800, 900 euros saved up. Ended up being 1,200 euros because of some unforeseen expenses. And how many how many total days were you there? Uh, total, I'd say about 30. 
Okay. But going through, I was basically that, okay, what, you know, where can I save money? Uh, say like the two things that sort of come to mind for me are food and gear. Food especially because, you know, many Parabinos are fairly affordable, but a lot of the places that you're going to be at have really great kitchens and food is really affordable uh, in the supermarkets and the alimentaciones. And I've whipped up some great meals by myself. I, you know, I made some great meals with other people and it's actually like a really nice other experience of the Camino to eat together, to make a, to make a meal together. And, you know, again, you can make a really nice, for instance, uh, Spanish tortilla for maybe about five euro. And that's your dinner and your lunch, for instance. <laughs> one, one item I would recommend to bring is like a small Tupperware. That was a life saver mm. in terms of carting around some food or, you know, uh, anything else. And there's no weight added to your pack, right? It's, it's really convenient. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, what, what is it, an ounce? Yeah, yeah not, nothing. Not that bad. Yeah, we definitely, when we travel, we plan around albergues with kitchens. It goes such a long way in yeah. reducing the expenses and improving just the general quality of life. And I think, you know, it, it's a nice reminder that, you know, the the experience of the Camino is not just while you're walking, but uh, while you're stopped, too. Mm -hmm. How did you manage the language barriers? Do you speak much Spanish? Yeah, well, my Spanish my Spanish is, is pretty good. I'm not fluent by any stretch of the imagination, but it's pretty good, and, you know, it's nice to sort of fall back into it. Of course, you know, between Cograms, uh, the lingua franca is, is English, and mm -hmm. so it's pretty pretty straightforward. But when you're speaking with a lot of with a lot of other people in the towns, obviously you're going to speak in Spanish. A lot of people know English, um, especially if they're in hospitality, but Spanish is the way to go. And I, I met a lot of people who, who didn't speak Spanish. I had to act as an interpreter, translator at points. But one thing I, I heard from uh, Masus and Los Arcos, actually, was he, he, he started off and I said, hi, how are you doing? He's like, first off, thank you for starting in Spanish. So, so many people start in English and, um, you know, I, I know they, they may not you know, speak a lot of it, but it really, it really makes me feel good. And so a big recommendation I would have for, you know, people starting off on the Camino is practice your Spanish, even if you don't think it's going to be, even if you don't think it's going to be good, because, you know, there's very much a, a gesture of appreciation if you don't launch into English. Mm -hmm. I've got special feelings about this because I'm a, I'm an English as a second language teacher. So mm -hmm. my uh, teacher instincts are coming out. I guess another thing that sort of came out, though, is I also speak some French, and I found there are a lot of opportunities to speak that along the way with other with other pilgrims. So um, if you speak any other languages, if you're feeling ambitious, bone up on those two and practice your uh, Italian or your German or your Korean uh, <laughs> on uh, you know along the way too. I think that'd be very nice. The dinner tables with five different languages are always fun, right? You just right, you, yeah. you find the people who you can link together to translate the conversation from one to the next. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely heard of the uh, you know the six way chain between the uh, <laughs> you know between like the, the French woman and the Korean girl and who else. Yeah, it's a good time. So you you had your phone, but how else did you document your Camino as you traveled? What worked for you? What would you do differently? What advice do you have for for people, whether it's pictures, communicating home, anything else that they might be trying to do? I guess the, the big thing was, you know, when, when I was trying to document the Camino, 
thought I would do all these different things. I ended up doing two. The, I, I tried taking a picture a day. Just one? I just, uh, at least. At least, okay. Um, I'm not a picture taker, so this was like a little bit of a stretch for me, but it worked out pretty well. I got a lot of great landscape shots and a lot of shots of the people I was traveling with, and it's a really nice way to keep the memories. The other way I did was I tried to do kind of a postcard journal where I bought a stack of postcards and tried to record an entry every day and then send them off to uh, to different people I knew. So hmm. that was a nice way to uh, keep it for me. I, I forget what I wrote, but you know, <laughs> my friends and family have it. And as for as for communication, you know, fortunately I've got a smartphone, and so I was able to text and call through through Wi-Fi, and that you know that was that was really all I needed. So you didn't need to buy, you know, really intense special plan. You could generally just operate off of the free Wi-Fi. Right. Is there, you know, as you look back on it now, is there something from the experience that that just sort of sticks in your mind that that you're dwelling on that you are sort of still working to process or or reconcile or bring closure to? Uh, I'm just wondering, some months down the road, uh, we find ourselves looking back a, a lot at the Camino experience. So is there anything for you that you're dwelling on? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm trying to process this, and um, I want to say just, like, finish off this chapter a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, I've gotten a lot of emails from people I've met, and so I want to reply to them, uh, each person in turn as well, just to, just to be nice at the very <laughs> least. But the big question I've sort of had on my mind is the Camino feels so feels so different from, in this case, Chicago, where, I'm, where I am right now. And one one of the big, I guess, realizations I had was I don't necessarily have to treat the, the Camino and Chicago as two mutually distinct places that have no connection with, with each other. It's not the same thing as, say, you know, Neverland and, you know, <laughs> the, the real world. And the, the question for me is, okay, so how how do I bring back the Camino to where I am now, to mm-hmm. quote-unquote the real world? And I think there's a lot of different things you can bring back there. I think one of the things is just generally like, you know, I found I was a lot more curious on the Camino. And hmm. so what are, what are some ways that I could be more curious about home? If you can figure this one out, then I think you have a great book that a lot of people would be signing up to read. Because oh, yeah. that that question of how do you bring that Camino experience back home and, and have it be a central mm-hmm. part of your daily existence is something that has eluded uh, the vast majority of us. You know, it's so easy. You yeah. come home with these these good intentions of how, you know, you're going to change these aspects of your life that um, that mm-hmm. you found so rewarding on Camino. And then two weeks later, you are just right back to, you know, the default from before. So I encourage you in your efforts and I, I hope that you can solve some stuff for us. Thank you, and you, you gave me a book idea. All right, man. Well, thanks for speaking with me about your experience, and I, I hope that you uh, you find some good answers to that last question. Thank you so much, David. Thank you for putting together this podcast. It's It's really wonderful. Let me say this up front. It has been a joy to talk with all of the people who have appeared on the podcast so far. 
It's a bit like being in a large virtual albergue, and I enjoy getting to connect with people who have engaged in pilgrimage in a lot of different ways. Some quite literally walking, others more academic. That said, there are a few interviews that have been particularly special for me, based on the influence that those people had on me. Jack Hitt, Mark Kurlansky, another one coming up in a couple of weeks. Their books, their work, had a profound impact on how I see and think about the Camino. I had another one of those interviews lined up. In December, when this podcast started, I emailed Marilyn Stockstad, a professor emeritus at University of Kansas. A renowned art historian, I had first seen Marilyn's name printed in large font on the side of her similarly large art history primer that my sister purchased in her first year of college. Every day I saw my sister lugging that thing around, a giant art history book that became the standard for so many introductory classes around the world. I saw that name, Stockstad, Stockstad, but didn't think much about it. Imagine my surprise when, a little later on, I discovered that this same person, Marilyn Stockstad, had written one of the defining accounts of Santiago de Compostela, her book titled Santiago de Compostela in the Age of Great Pilgrimages, published in 1979. Could she have known then that we were about to enter another age of great pilgrimages? I couldn't wait to ask. But weeks passed by without a response. I pretty much gave up hope that I would hear from her. But then, in mid-January, a reply. Marilyn indicated a willingness to speak with me and offered a couple of possible date ranges. I responded immediately, proposing a couple of specific times. But then five days passed, no response. I sent a polite follow-up, just in case my first email didn't go through. Two more weeks passed, no response again. So I sent another email, expressing my hope that we could find a good time to speak. I never did hear from Marilyn again. In March, I was hit by a gloomy thought. Marilyn was 86 when I first wrote her. I googled her name, and surely enough, sadly enough, she had passed. Marilyn Stockstad died on March 4th, 2016, at the age of 87. This is from the International Center of Medieval Arts Obituary on Marilyn. One of the most beloved art historians of our generation, Marilyn always radiated a profoundly wide knowledge of art and sparkled with encouragement to all. At heart, she was a populist, asking all to look and learn, often offering advice with a dose of laughter. From the beginning, Marilyn was a pioneer. Her 1957 dissertation for the University of Michigan on the Portico de Gloria of the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela was an exceptional accomplishment. Marilyn was a pioneer in many ways, and especially at a time when, as a young woman, it required remarkable courage to venture to Spain alone for her research during the time of Generalissimo Francisco Franco. 
She placed Santiago within a larger European artistic and cultural context, an approach that was built upon by many others. Her work included an appendix on the role of color on the portal, many decades before the monument became a UNESCO site, with legions of specialists focusing on its greatness. I knew Marilyn's work by reading it, but I didn't know the stories behind it, and her obituary highlighted just how daring and colorful those stories must be. Unable to conduct my own interview, I tried to find others, but I had little luck. One extended interview appeared, conducted by Pat Kelly as part of an extended oral history project at University of Kansas, and the lone reference to Marilyn's work on Santiago offers a tempting glimpse into her humor. Speaking of her dissertation on Santiago, Marilyn said, It was very tricky because I was doing medieval sculpture, architectural sculpture, the Portico de la Gloria, the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela. And I had two people, the chair of the department and the senior professor were both feeling responsible for it. The chair of the department was an architectural historian, George Forsyde, and Harold Wethy was the senior professor. He did sculpture and painting. So the two men did not get along. It finally focused on my dissertation. For one of them insisted that I would say the Portico de la Gloria of the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela. The other one said I should say Santiago de Compostela's Portico de la Gloria. Right now, I don't even remember who argued for which, but it made no difference whatsoever. So I would switch back and forth between them. And both of them had to approve. And frankly, I don't even remember how it worked out. But anyway, this was the last of my horrible crises. Getting this stupid dissertation through. Getting the Portico de la Gloria of, or Santiago's Portico de la Gloria, whichever. I've never really fussed over that sort of thing. Sadly, that's all the interview offers on Marilyn's experience with Santiago de Compostela. Today, her great work on Santiago de Compostela is out of print, though used copies are available online. Her work had a huge impact, impact on how I think about churches generally and Santiago de Compostela specifically. With regards to the former, I took note of how she described the particular challenge of the Christian architect. For the Christian architect had to serve two dual goals. First, the architect must provide an earthly home for his God, a magnificent shrine that captures the full glory of God. At the same time, the architect must also provide facilities to house the entire religious community during worship. While that might sound rather commonplace now, it was actually quite unusual among early religions. The architect must essentially balance the practical and the profound. And of course, pilgrimage compounded those challenges as crowds grew in size and their needs expanded. It's not enough just to sit in worship. Pilgrims needed to connect with relics. Thus, we see the creation of the ambulatory, a walkway going around the altar, with chapels radiating, radiating around the back, allowing some to sit in worship and listening to a sermon, while others could take care of their uh, more focused worship um, at individual shrines. 
I found that to be quite insightful. And it's, it's something that comes up again and again when reading about the nature of pilgrimage, particularly in the early Middle Ages, and the movement from Romanesque to Gothic church architecture. With regards to Santiago de Compostela, there's a really interesting political dynamic at work in the city in the Middle Ages at the height of the pilgrimage. As Santiago grew, that political climate became all the more complicated and turbulent. Here's a quote from Marilyn. The history of the city of Santiago de Compostela is that of a constant struggle between the bishop who tried to maintain his absolute authority and the people who wanted self-government. The lower classes had little to lose and were always ready for a fray. The wealthy burghers hoped for greater civil rights. Suppression by the vicars, sheriffs, and militia only added to the pressures, and civil disobedience had a real meaning and purpose in 12th century Santiago de Compostela. Even a relatively benevolent dictator was a dictator. That dictator Marilyn refers to, the bishop, was Diego Helmirez, ultimately the first archbishop of Santiago, and the man often credited with turning the pilgrimage into the phenomenon that it became. That civil disobedience, she mentions, was amplified over time and transformed into violent uprisings in 1117. Stokstad includes an extended excerpt from the Historia Compostelana, describing the attack on Helmirez and Queen Uraca of Castile, León, and Galicia. She describes how the Church of Santiago was set on fire, how citizens stormed and looted the bishop's palace, causing the queen and the bishop to go running. The queen ultimately came forward, believing that she would be given safe conduct, and instead she was beaten, her clothes shredded, and left on the ground naked and bloodied. The bishop, at one point, escapes a dangerous moment by making a hole in the wall separating two houses and crawling through, and then doing that to another wall, and another wall. You get a sense of just how compact the houses were and how flimsy the materials that a bishop could so routinely break holes open between the separating walls and crawl through seeking escape. This is a short vignette, but... It's indicative of the dynamics at work in Santiago as the pilgrimage was booming. And Marilyn goes beyond this to describe really what life was like in the city at the time for citizens of the city, for pilgrims passing through, and not just the politics, but the daily experience of the people living in the city. It's a remarkable portrait of a place that's at the center of this pilgrimage experience that so many of us have been drawn to. So, while I regret not having the chance to speak directly with Marilyn, I hope that this offers some indication of my appreciation for her work and acknowledgement of her contributions to the body of literature surrounding Santiago de Compostela and the pilgrimage, and a final goodbye, while at the same time, I hope, introducing some of you to her work. And if there's any luck and justice out there, some publisher will 
take up her text, reissue it, and make it accessible, fully accessible, to another generation of pilgrims. Thank you, Marilyn. That's going to do it for episode 17 of the Camino podcast. Thanks again to Kathleen Ashley for speaking with me about her research, her work that she did in support of being a pilgrim, and about the wonderful church architecture along the Pilgrim's Road to Santiago. Thanks to Carl Otto for telling his story about his experience on the Camino Frances. As I speak, I'm still looking for a couple of people to speak with me about two early stages in the Camino Frances, Santo Domingo de la Calzada, going back to Los Arcos, or going forward to Burgos. So if you have a great memory of this stretch, please get in touch. I'd like to talk with you for part of the rewalking series on the Camino Frances. Please also check out our new Facebook page, facebook.com slash Camino Podcast. It's a chance to check uh, some videos that I've posted in support of some of the guests that I've interviewed and also to potentially interact, send some feedback, talk with others who are listening. So please check it out. That's it for now. Thanks and have a great day.